Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Thanksgiving holiday was by far and away my favorite time of year. Because for me, a kid who grew up living in a few different places, every single year I could count on the same thing. My family would load up our suburban or our minivan and make the trek to West Virginia, through the mountains to a farm outside a little town called Union. This was my grandparents' farm, and we would show up and it would feel like there were hundreds of cousins and aunts and uncles packing this house to the rafters for a week-long celebration of this Thanksgiving feast, playing and feasting and enjoying life. For me, when I think of Thanksgiving, this is what will always come to mind. Now, this year is probably the first Thanksgiving that my young son, William, is going to remember. Maybe. He's two, but the kid has a really good memory and I'm thinking about his experience of Thanksgiving and Christmas this year. And his first memory of Thanksgiving and this Christmas season, this Advent season, is very strange. But you know what? I think that this year's practice of Thanksgiving and the coming Advent season is far more consistent with being a people of exile than those fast, festive seasons I grew up with. Robert, in his sermon last week, asked us the question, how do we live as a holy nation when we live in the midst of a foreign land? In essence, what he was getting at is the fact that we, as Christians, the people of God, are exiles. This is not our home. Our true citizenship lies in Christ's kingdom, and we are awaiting the return of our king. That's what we are practicing now in this season of Advent. And maybe we are feeling the reality of our exile more acutely in this holiday season than we have in the past. Life as an exile is hard. There is the constant temptation to be sucked into the identities of the world around us, to give in to cynicism, disbelief that God's kingdom is actually here and doing something, disbelief that Jesus will ever return and make all the bad things come untrue, or we simply seek escape in the pleasures and distractions of our society. But we, as the people of God, must practice thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a discipline that's been given to the people of God to train our identity to give light to the world, and so that we might delight in the steadfast love of God. It's something we desperately need, especially in light of where we currently are.
And we're going to see that this morning as we look at our text, Psalm 138. We are going to see the pattern for thanksgiving, the purpose of thanksgiving, and the power for thanksgiving. First, the pattern of thanksgiving. Psalm 138 is one of many psalms of thanksgiving that you will find throughout the Psalter. But it is significant because of where it's located. If you were to flip back and look at Psalm 137, you would find a cry of desperation and lament. See, that psalm that comes before our text this morning, it's written from the perspective of an exile of Israel. God's covenant people had been conquered by a foreign nation called Babylon. And the Babylonians forced the Israelites who survived the fighting to leave their homeland and live in exile. They did this to crush the Israelites' hope, to destroy their identity by removing them from their home. And so this psalm that comes before our text this morning, it's picturing a group of Israelites on a march of exile, leaving their homeland, leaving all that they hold dear, being taken to a foreign land. And on the way, they're being tormented by their conquerors who are taunting them to sing to your God. And so these exiles are asking, how will we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And they cry out to God not to let them forget their identity, not to let them forget their home. And so whoever arranged this book of Psalms placed Psalm 138, this psalm of thanksgiving, directly after this cry of lament. He did so with intention. This psalm, written long before by King David, is the answer to the questions these exiles are asking. How will we sing the Lord's song? How will we remember our identity in a foreign land? And so Psalm 138 begins by providing a pattern of thanksgiving for exiles to practice. After beginning in verse 1 by describing the way that he, David, is going to give thanks with a whole heart in the view of the gods of other lands and those who worship, David says this, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This language, steadfast love and faithfulness, would immediately prick the ears of these exiled people. See, they they are a people whose daily rhythms and weekly rhythms are all steeped in reading and hearing the first five books of the Bible. And so they would recognize this phrase as the phrase that God spoke to Moses when Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. And God chooses to reveal his glory to Moses by telling Moses who he is. And here's what he says. He passes in front of Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God then goes on and renews the covenant that he had made with the Israelites long before to their forefather Abraham, a childless old man who God comes to and says, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you descendants. And those descendants are going to be so numerous that you can't even count them. You can't even fathom them. And those people are going to become a nation. He makes this promise to Abraham and he renews that covenant with Israel through Moses. And he begins it by revealing himself as the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so there's something happening here for the Israelite in exile. As they hear these words in David's psalm, they're being called to remember this great 
history of all that God has done for his covenant people in light of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That God chose the family of Abraham to become a nation while living in Egypt, who Moses would leave out of, out of slavery, forming them into a nation, bringing them to a promised land in Canaan, all while they were constantly choosing disbelief and cynicism about God's faithfulness to them. And so this is the step, the first step of the pattern of the discipline of thanksgiving. We recall the history of what God has done for his people because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. David then moves on from this big, broad story of how God has chosen to relate to his people as a whole to recounting an individual story of God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards him. And while we might not know specifically what David is referring to, the pattern is clear. He moves from recounting this big covenant relationship that God has with his people and the deeds that he has wrought throughout history to thanking God for the personal ways that God has shown that covenant steadfast love and faithfulness to him. And so by placing Psalm 138 here, for these exiled people to pray, a pattern of thanksgiving is being provided for them that they desperately need. And this pattern does nothing less than remind them of their identity, that they are God's chosen people. And by repetition of this thanksgiving pattern, their identity is formed and cemented. My son William, um, he has this, this little book that someone in our family gave to him. And it's a little photo album made for the use and abuse of a two-year-old boy. Um, so it's absolutely trashed by this point. But he loves it. He drags it around the house with him everywhere. And he's always bringing it to my wife, Jess, and I and saying, uh, can you read this? Obviously not with complete sentences. He's two. But that's what he's getting at. And what this book does, this little storybook, it has pictures of Jess and I getting engaged of our, our wedding with all of our family and our friends surrounding us. It has pictures of uh, the different events of our little family's history, of us getting our first dog, of different vacations. And then it moves on, and it has pictures of uh, William's birth. And it has pictures of him as a little baby and the different holidays that he's been to. And he loves this thing. And so I commented to Jess, I, you know, I was kind of laughing at it because it was kind of cute and funny, and I was flattered that my son loved looking at pictures of us. And she said, no, Mac, <laughs> that's not what's going on. See, she had been reading this, this great book on parenting boys um, called Wild Things, and in it, it points out the need for young boys specifically to have tangible reminders of their history. It helps them locate who they are. What's happening, whether he realizes it or not, as young William is reading this book all the time, looking at the pictures, asking the stories, it's forming his identity. He's coming to understand where he fits in the broader story of our family. It's telling him his identity, and it's cementing it the more he practices it. And this is what the pattern of thanksgiving given in this psalm does for a people in exile. It tells them, and it tells us, who we are, and where we have come from. That we are the people of God, chosen people, that he loves us with a steadfast love and is utterly faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. The pattern of thanksgiving 
we look back at God's deeds in history of steadfast love, of the covenants unraveling in the Old Testament, a covenant to Abraham, a covenant to Moses, all of these ultimately being fulfilled in the coming of Christ Jesus, fulfilling these covenants, saving us from our sin, and making us into God's chosen people. Then we turn from this larger story and we look at the individual ways that God has demonstrated that same steadfast love and faithfulness to us. We recount the stories in our lives of how God has acted mightily for us. Namely, in that he has called us to himself, convicted us of our sin, given us faith in his son as the sacrifice for our sins, and in the innumerable ways that he gives us life and breath and sustains us and nourishes us every day. Practicing thanksgiving in this pattern forms our identity. It reminds us of who we are, even and especially while we are in exile. Because right now, in the place that we are, just in the history of redemption, we are a people in exile, and it is so easy to forget who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. After giving the exiles and us this pattern for thanksgiving, Psalm 138 then shows the purpose of that thanksgiving. In verses 4 through 6, the psalmist turns from speaking of God's steadfast love and faithfulness in the past to looking at what is currently happening in the world around them. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Again, remember that this psalm has been placed where it is specifically and with purpose. It's being given to train an exiled people in how to sing the Lord's song when they are in a foreign land. And what's happening in these verses is that the purpose of their thanksgiving is being revealed. Put yourself into the shoes of these exiled people for a second. They know that they've been called God's chosen people, but they've just been overthrown by a foreign enemy that does not worship or care about their God. An enemy that has trampled God's city, Jerusalem, to dust, has captured the king, burned the temple, and dragged off all the survivors to a foreign land. How would these people interpret these events? Well, this section promises that the kings of the earth, including the kings and the people of Babylon, will give thanks and glory to God. And so what's happening here is it's reminding the exiles that God has a purpose even in their exile. Indeed, Jeremiah 29 tells us that it was not ultimately Babylon that carried off the Israelites, but it was the Lord himself. And so what purpose does he have in their exile? Well, if you look back at these covenant things that we've been talking about in the Old Testament, what you see is that God is always telling his chosen people, these people uh, that he has chosen to be his holy nation, he's always telling them that they exist to bring the glory and the knowledge of the Lord to foreign nations, that they are to be a light to all the other nations. The Israelites were called not only to be the beneficiaries of God's steadfast love, but to be agents of it as they turn to him in thanksgiving and praise. So this is why verses four through six turn to speaking of these foreign kings hearing the word of God and turning to him in thanksgiving and praise. And how are they hearing the word of God? What's the explanation given? Well, if you, give it, if you look at it in context, what's happening is that it's through the thanksgiving of these exiled people that these foreign kings, their oppressors, are hearing 
the truths of who God is and turning to him in worship. Imagine with me for a moment that uh, you live 400-some years ago in 1636. You live in what is now Germany in a city called Eilenburg, and the wildly devastating 30 years war is just breaking out. Your city is filling with refugees. It's becoming overcrowded, famine, plague. It's breaking out. And the city's under constant attack. This is the situation that a Lutheran minister named Martin Linkert found himself in. He was a pastor, and he found himself in this year uh, as the only surviving minister who was left in the city. The others had either fled or they had died from the plagues. And so it fell on him to perform the funerals of some 4,000 people in one year alone, one being his own wife. These are truly brutal circumstances. And what I found fascinating is the pattern, the discipline that Martin instituted in his home. Martin began to lead his children and anyone, any of these refugees who might be staying with him, he began to lead them in this dinnertime hymn that he wrote. Let me read for you a few of the words. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. You might recognize these lyrics as part of the great Thanksgiving hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. Written by Rinkart, his life and this hymn that he was leading his family in bears incredible testimony and witness and is a source of light in the midst of brutal circumstances. This is a picture of the purpose of our thanksgiving. To proclaim the steadfast love and faithfulness of God even when the world can only see darkness. Modern research, this, this time of year in uh, various magazines and blogs and whatever else, uh, there's all these different uh, speakers who want to tell us of the great benefits of gratitude, of offering thanksgiving. And they point to things like uh, that gra practicing gratitude gives you better mental health. It improves your relationships. Um, it even gives you better sleep. And so that's the focus that our culture gives for Thanksgiving. And I'm thankful that we recognize that there really is a need for Thanksgiving. But this focus on the individual nature of Thanksgiving misses something of its purpose. This practice is not just us writing a letter of thanks and sending it up to God. I love how one author put it, that our Thanksgiving is a collective shout where we tell everyone within earshot, come see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. God has called us to practice thanksgiving so that the world would know of his glory. And this is especially true of a people who find themselves in the circumstances of exile, who find themselves in a foreign land amongst a foreign people. We practice thanksgiving. Finally, Psalm 138 shows us the power for thanksgiving. After giving the pattern in verses 1 through 3 and the purpose in verses 4 through 6, the psalm gives us the power for thanksgiving, the engine, the driver for thanksgiving. David turns his attention away from what God has done in the past and is currently doing in the world around him. And he confesses his confidence in what God will do for him in the future. He confesses his confidence that in the midst of trouble, God will preserve his life. That no matter the enemies that face him, 
God will stretch out his hand and protect him and deliver him from danger. David then gives an all-encompassing statement of confidence. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. And then he closes by calling on God not to forsake the work of his hands. How can David be so confident of God's continued care for him? If you know the story of David, you are well aware that David was a broken and flawed man. David was well aware of this fact. Just look at Psalm 51. It's recounting the fact that David is recognizing he deserves nothing from God. He is deserving of nothing. The only thing that he might deserve is God's wrath and punishment for his sin. And this is the power for thanksgiving. A deep and intimate knowledge of our individual wild unworthiness to receive anything good from God. But even though we are rebels and sinners against God who deserve nothing but his displeasure, he has chosen to pour out his steadfast love and faithfulness on us. In deserving nothing, this is what he has chosen. And that steadfast love and faithfulness became a living, walking, and talking person in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is God's love literally made flesh. The one who came to this earth and he lived the perfect life we could not live. The only one who ever deserved God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He was the one who deserved to be preserved from trouble. The one who deserved to be protected from the wrath of his enemies. The one who deserved to be delivered by God and he was not. While David can close this psalm calling on God not to forsake the work of his hands, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of this so that the people who are completely undeserving of God's favor towards us, you and me, might enjoy the blessings of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And so here lies the power for thanksgiving. It's an intimate knowledge of our undeserving nature, and yet God has given us everything. We deserve nothing from him. He has given us everything in Christ Jesus. A friend reminded me this last week of a beautiful picture of this kind of thanksgiving playing out. It comes from Luke 17, 11 through 19, and Jesus is continuing his journey towards Jerusalem uh, and towards his crucifixion. And he passes through this little village. And outside the village is a group of 10 lepers. Leprosy is a brutal disease. And these people are cast out of society. They are untouchables. They are unclean. They have never received anything from anyone. And they see Jesus and they call out to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And the steadfast love of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, turns to them and heals them and tells them to go. Show themselves to the priest, prove that they've been healed, and enter back into society. And so nine of the lepers, they run on their way, rejoicing in the fact that they've been cured of this disease. Probably going on to years of recounting this great deed of Jesus and cleansing them of their leprosy and giving them a new life. But one of the lepers, he turns back and he runs 
and he falls flat on his face before Jesus and offers him thanks for what he has just done. And the text tells us that the one who runs back is actually a Samaritan. Uh, This is a people group who are always at odds with the Jews. There's a lot of bad blood between these two groups. So he is a Samaritan, and not only a Samaritan, but a leper. He knows that he is completely at the bottom of the totem pole of receiving anything from this Jewish man, Jesus. He knows that he should receive nothing and that Jesus has just given him everything. That's what drives his thanksgiving. And brothers and sisters, this picture of the Samaritan leper with Jesus is in fact a picture of us. That we are a people sick to our core with a spiritual leprosy of sin. We are, because of that sin, untouchables to God. And yet, God, because of that steadfast love and faithfulness, chooses to enter into human history and take on all that makes us undeserving. This is the power for our gratitude. This is the power for thanksgiving. We, a people who are living in exile, so desperately need this discipline of thanksgiving that the text lays out for us. Its pattern reminds us of our identity. Its purpose is to proclaim the mighty works of God in the midst of a dark and hurting world. And it is powered by knowing and tasting God's undeserved, steadfast love and faithfulness towards undeserving sinners like you and I. And so, in light of this, and in light of this being the first Sunday of Advent, where we are entering into this season of acknowledging that although Jesus has come, this world is still a place of our exile, and we are longing for him to come again. In light of that, my application is this. We, as a people in exile, must practice thanksgiving. I know, especially in light of this last week, that I need it. When Jess and I sat down on Thursday afternoon around our little table, this is the first Thanksgiving I've ever celebrated without like a lot of family and friends, and so it was just strange from the get-go. But as we sat down and we began to speak of all the things that we have to be thankful for in this last year, it felt a lot like running for the first time after years of not running at all or using my legs. Exercising this discipline of thanksgiving felt a lot like exercising a muscle that's become emaciated and crippled from chronic underuse. And so I know that I need to be trained in this discipline of thanksgiving. I need to remember my identity as we wait for the coming of our King Jesus. So let us submit to this discipline of thanksgiving. Let's pray.